Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by Raptor Aid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook. Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. In this interview, we chat to our good friend Scott Mason of Parahawking. Now, if Parahawking sounds like a combination of paragliding and birds of prey, you'd be absolutely right. Scott pioneered Parahawking over in Nepal and has since brought it to Spain. A massive supporter of vulture conservation. It's a wonderful thing that Scott's managed to achieve and we can't wait to find out more about it. Right, as far as I'm aware, as always, we're live, Scott. So welcome to uh, Facebook Live, question and answer. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, all the way sunny, is it sunny out in Spain at the moment? No, it's absolutely miserable. It's been raining all day. Yes, yeah, it's, it's terrible. We've had the worst three, four weeks of weather like since, since the lockdown. Oh, wow, because we're yeah. the opposite, you see. We've had, like, our winter was wet and dreadful. And yeah. now it's now the weather couldn't be nicer at the moment. It's a bit cool in the breeze, but but yeah. sunshine. I was I thought you were winding me up then by saying it's been horrible. No, we're sitting here with our you know long sleep like hoodies on in the house because we've got no heating. None of the houses have got heating. Yeah. So you know, when it gets cold, you just put more clothes on. Oh right. Oh right. Okay. Well, so, sorry to bring the weather up then. Um, <laughs> right. right. Okay. Well, well, I'm looking at a nice um, vista out the window, so it's not too bad. The clouds. Oh, yeah. Are yeah. Clear. True. I can just see a washing line out my window. Um, so I always start the same way, just with getting people to tell us a bit about what you do and, yeah, your you, your business that you run as well. Um, and then we'll go we'll go right go right back to the beginning, how you got into birds of prey, and then so just to give people a grounding on where this crazy madcap pioneering idea of flying with birds of prey came from so yeah, yeah sure. go on how did you get into birds of prey well so um I've got, well i've sort of been into birds ever since i was a kid really um probably my first introduction to birds my what sort of fueled the interest was um joining the yoc the young ornithologist uh club and um at the time i can't remember how old i was but um lloyd's bank were offering a welcome pack um, how old are you, Jimmy? Well, I didn't want to say that I don't remember YOC. So, yeah, I'm 34. Okay. So. I'm 48. So, um, the, the YOC, the Young Ornithologists Club, and they that was the branch of the RSPB. Yeah, yeah. Kids, and, and they were offering a little welcome pack if you joined the bank. So, um, I joined the bank and got this welcome pack. So, that was my, and I had, you know, I think you got a, um, a book of British Birds of Prey and a membership yeah. to, the, to the YOC. So, that was my first. Kind of interest in, in birds. Um, how I got into birds of prey, I, I suppose I was kind of obsessed with birds of prey from being interested in birds. And a friend of mine at school had um, his dad worked at some wildlife um, rescue centre, and he would often bring home tawnies and kestrels and barn owls to look after. And so we would hang out there and feed the birds. And he got into falconry through that, and we just kind of followed him through that. 
So it was quite lucky in the sense that there was a few of us in our school and I grew up in Dagenham. Yeah. In Essex. Yeah. So, um, you know, big, huge council estate. Um, and, you know, not the normal place to kind of get into wildlife or falconry at all. But there was a yeah. few of us who had this interest and we all kind of egged each other on. You know, we all convinced our parents to let us to let us get birds and we all I think we all did a number on our parents but like Brett's allowed to get a bird Steve's allowed to get a bird you know none of us were allowed to get birds but because of that we were all kind of we all got yeah. a bird. and I got a, a barn owl Steve got a kestrel I think Brett had a tawny owl and we just went on from there oh nice excellent yeah yeah I don't think I ever gave my parents any choice I just turned up home with this stuff and whether it was a yeah a bird of prey or whatever the yeah. animal was but okay so falconry started with that what did you did you do it professionally um before um, before the parahawking idea kicked off I, I don't yeah know. so i practiced for i mean i was we were 12 years old at that point so i didn't really know a lot about falconry and falconry wasn't something that i was really aware of until about a year later i suppose and we got into you know started reading a lot of books very different in those days compared to now because yeah. all you had was books and um there was the odd club yeah. Um, so we formed a club called the East London Falconers um, and, uh, and then that morphed into, uh, well, we all left that club and we went on to South East Falconry Group, which is still going today. Good, I think yeah. you, know, you must know Gary Vidis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's still chairing that club, you know, 30 odd years later. So we joined that club. So, uh, yeah, I practised falconry from that moment on, you know, and, until I got... I left school at 16, worked for a bank for a couple of years. Um, and then a job came up at the British School of Falconry, um, working at Emma and Steve's place. Wow. And I applied, I applied for that and got it as an, as an instructor there. So I worked there for a, about a, just over a year, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, that's the way, that's falconry royalty there. Brilliant, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I look back on it now and like, you know, yeah, what a privilege, really, to work with those guys. So knowledgeable. I learned so much from being there. It's the first time I'd worked with a collection of birds yeah. and um, and teaching falconry. So, you know, I really had to know my stuff, you know, make sure that I, I you know, didn't look like an idiot. Yeah. And um, and I worked with Stuart Russell. I don't know whether you know Stuart Russell. He uh, lives in the States now, but um, he'd been working with Stephen Emma for a long while, a very experienced falconer. So I got to work with some of the best at that yeah. time. Cool. So when was the light bulb moment then? When did that, what, where's that on the timeline? The light bulb for parahawking? Yeah, yeah, this, that's what I'm getting to, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I worked at Stephen Emmons for about a year and a bit, and then I left there, came back to normal life, worked in London, uh, ran a graphic design company, still practising falconry, but, you know, in my spare time, rushing home from work, flying the goss, running the dog, going out on weekends, you know, all of the holiday times um but it was all becoming a bit too much and the business was taking a bit of a you know a different turn in direction different direction so um i wanted to go traveling and um i took a year out closed the business up took a year out and it was the first time since i was a kid that i hadn't had any birds at all that was my you know like my year off of not having any birds six yeah. weeks into the trip i was in nepal and um i'd only planned to be in nepal a couple of weeks two, three weeks at the most, doing the activities, trekking, rafting, you know, just trying to soak up as much sort of adventure activities as I could before going to Thailand, where I was just going to hang out and party 
on a beach for a while. And on the second from last day, um, I've we had a spare day and I was like, you know, there's people flying up there. I hadn't really taken a huge amount of notice, but I saw people paragliding. And I thought that might be quite an interesting thing to do. I'd seen vultures flying around. And I, you know what, I didn't even put the two together. I didn't even think, oh, we, you know, we, I could have this amazing experience flying with birds um, until I got up on the flight and, uh, and then flew with uh, griffin vultures, Egyptian vultures, you know, Benelli's eagle. And I was like, just amazed, blown, completely blown away. And the guy that I flew with was also interested in birds as well. And he'd had this idea. So it wasn't my idea initially. It was, it was he'd, he'd had this idea to see if, you know, it, it was possible to train birds to fly with him because he wanted to see if the birds could guide him to where the thermals are. That was yeah. his idea. So we talked about me being a bird trainer and, and uh, you know, I'd said, yeah, it was possible. You know, we could train birds to fly with us. We went out that night and got drunk in one of the local bars in yep. uh, in lakeside and that was where we came up with the plan oh brilliant okay yeah and that was so just just so people know just explain what parahawking is because there may be someone that watches this and goes what i have still no idea what parahawking is so go on yeah well it was a, it was a name that we made up in the bar you know the more drunk we got the the better the idea seemed you know and then at one point let's call it parahawking you know paragliding hawking this sounds great and so it was just a made up word that just ended up sticking just to kind of give it some you know some identity i mean we were making a film at the time and um and that name kind of just lent itself perfectly to the to the whole project so it's just a combination of paragliding and hawking really and you know and that's sort of it stuck so you so when you're part because i i've been i've only been once and i have to admit it was one of the coolest experiences i've ever had um it was surreal though so i've been I've, i've been in a tandem um paragliding so it is surreal being sat between a fully grown man's legs hanging there and then running off the edge of a cliff and yeah, then floating about with absolutely nothing other than a big canopy above you holding you up. It's but it, it's cool. So I can I can completely understand that. But that's essentially what it is, isn't it? You you now take people up in, and you have been for years, take people up on a tandem paraglider and they have a falconry glove on. And yeah, yeah. you have trained birds that that come and, and land on their fist while you're you're fl- while you're flying, yeah. essentially. That's yeah. that's the gist of it. It was, that's the gist of it now, but it was, ne- it was never really meant to be anything more than an experiment to see if we could get some birds to fly with us. So, you know, as the conversation went on, well, the night ended and we were both drunk and he went one way and I went the other. And, um, and that was kind of the end of it, really. We never thought for one minute that it would turn into something. The following day, I'd left and I was on my way to Kathmandu and I was flying out to Thailand. And he called me when I was in Kathmandu. This is Adam. He called me when I was in Canada. He said, you've got to come back to Pokhara. Um, I've just rescued two black kites. And, um, and I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm on my way to Thailand. You know, and he's like, well, you want to do this thing that we were talking about last night? And, you know, so that was it. I turned around and went straight back to Pokhara. And so we reared, we had these two black kites. In fact, we had three. And the mum, what had happened was um, a farmer had chopped a tree down, um, yeah. with a whole nest of kites in, and he'd captured the mum. And, you know, with, with the intention of saving the birds, I don't think he realised there was a nest of birds in, 
in the trees. Um, and so we rescued these birds. One of the chicks died, and then the mum eventually died because she had a, an infection in her leg where he'd, he'd te tethered her. Um, so we had these two very young chicks that we ended up rearing, and we filmed the whole process from that point. So there's a film out there somewhere called Parahawking, which is basically do documents the whole process from the very beginning. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. So though, so, and those the young black kites. How many was there? Two was did you say or three? So there was, yeah, two young black black kites. Yeah. So they went on to to be part of the the team. Is that right? One of them did. Yeah, one of them was lost a few years later. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, neither of them were very good to be honest at at what I wanted them to do. You know, it was a big learning curve, and um, a lot of mistakes were made along the way. Um, and you know, we didn't think it was going to be a business. All I wanted to do was teach the birds to fly with me, hopefully get them to sort of guide us to where the thermals are, because yeah. essentially, naturally, they'll always want to stay in the air. They'll, they'll want to conserve as much energy as possible when they're flying. Yeah. So they'll find the lift and we follow them. So I, ne I wasn't teaching them to find thermals. I was just rewarding them for being in the air and hopefully, you know, getting them to follow me when I landed, because there was no point in landing and then the birds still be up there. So, you know, it, it wasn't any more complicated than that. Getting the birds to fly with me and then land with me. Yeah. Okay. And, and then obviously, I suppose it, that, that worked. And, um, and yeah, you, you, you probably realised at some point that you could take people up tandem and, yeah, make a business. Yeah. Well, it How was so about 2005. So this was like four or five years later that we, I rescued an Egyptian vulture. And, um, and then he was reared in captivity. He couldn't go back to the wild. So I trained him to fly and he was like infinitely better than the black kites. And um, uh, so it kind of, it, it sort of, the whole thing started to fall into place. You know, we were able to take people up on tandem flights because the thing was a little bit more reliable. And, um, and even then though, you know, it wasn't a business. It was just me taking people up on tandem flights, going around the bars, um, you know, convincing people that parahawking was a thing that they could do and maybe yeah. raise a little bit of money to feed, help feed the birds. You know, I was still working as a graphic designer at that stage, trying to get a little bit of income. Oh wow! So, uh, so you were working, you were working out in Nepal. You were now living in. You're based in Nepal, living out there, working as a graphic designer slash uh, slash parahawker. That's that's well, cool. Yeah, I mean, working as a parahawking, but I mean that's a bit far fetched really I, we, we bought a property me between me adam and graham two uh, two friends we bought this property it was a rundown um kind of a resort uh, that was going very cheap absolutely beautiful location right on the lake and if anyone is listening if anyone's listening and they've been there they'll they'll know how lovely it was um and so that was our home and um and i built started to build up the bird project from there so we'd had a home, we had this kind of business that was a restaurant that we, you know, it was just basically for us and our friends to hang out. It was right yeah. on the landing zone. And then I had the birds there. And so I was doing um, freelance graphic design work on the side just to sort of make ends meet. So the, cause obviously you, so you mentioned one of the, one of the Egyptian vultures, cause I know you had two, didn't you? There's two, they're, they're famous in, in, in parahawking terms. I think you could probably argue that they, they're probably two of the most famous birds. There was, which was the first one then? Who was the first one that came along? The Egyptian vulture, Kevin. Kevin. Yeah. And then there was Bob. Yeah. Well, interestingly, Kevin was the first one that I ended up keeping, but I'd rescued two other Egyptian vultures prior to that. 
which I'd released. Um, so one was a, um, a juvenile, but it, um, you know, not not an IS. And the other one was an adult bird, which both, I think one was poisoned and another one was just dehydrated or hungry, but they were both released. And that was a couple of years earlier. So Kevin was the first one that I'd actually kept because he yeah. was brought me as a chick. Yeah, so he was imprinted, so he couldn't go back to the wild. And then Bob, how long after that did Bob, Bob arrive then? Bob came, so Kevin was 2006, I think uh, two years later, two or three years later. Oh, cool, okay. Yeah, because I, I think, uh, I mean, I do remember the black kites following you in the, the early days when, when you were parahawking. And um, and then, yeah, I remember, obviously, definitely remember the, the, the Egyptian vultures. Yeah. Um, and so when when did it when would you say did you have a sort of moment where you sat back on a veranda or wherever around the lake and went wow this is actually really happening we've we've you know we've because you've done some epic stuff you know I I know you know you've done Nas National Geographic you've done some you know some big big stuff on TVs um, all over the world obviously in this country Deadly Sixty with Sticky Backshaw we. Yeah. We talked, you know, I talking to Yolo Williams the other day. So was there a moment where you thought, yeah, we've, you know, this is, this is really, really working? Yeah, not really. Like it sort of evolved because it was, you know, we were there for 16 years and the whole thing evolved over a long period of time. You know, even by getting Kevin and flying with Kevin in 2005, 2006, I think we'd done some early TV um, even in those early days, we weren't doing a lot of tandems. You know, I think the last, the first year of doing tandems, I think I've done like 20, 20 tandems. Um, and then the following year, I think I've done 50. Uh, and then it sort of doubled from there, moment, you know, but I, I was obsessed with the idea um, of it becoming something. And it wasn't about it becoming a business because I never saw it being a huge money spinner. Yeah, you know, I, I always knew that there was going to be some kind of cap on it. There's only so many people that I could I could take flying <clears throat> and it wasn't going to generate a huge amount of money. I needed to do it to cover my costs. I wanted to continue to live in Nepal. Yeah, I didn't really have anything to come back to the UK for. So I knew that I had to earn a living out of it some somehow. Um, but more importantly, I think that I wanted to do something positive for vulture conservation because that issue had been bubbling away since since 2001 and um you know and it was getting progressively worse and we were we were aware that vultures weren't getting a huge amount of uh, attention and we wanted to make sure that we could use parahawk as a platform to sort of promote that you froze a little bit there you still there Yeah, I'm still there. You froze a little bit, and I think it's just the internet's jumping about a little bit. Um, but yeah, the so that you, you're talking there about obviously the, the the vulture crisis, as everyone knows it, and and or anyone who's followed a bird bird conservation, and and when it hit really hard or started to come, you know, people started to learn more and more about the the effects of of diclofenac or diclofenac, however you know want to pronounce it. Um, and uh, we were going to come on to that, and it, yeah, you sorry, know. Yeah, no, no, it's all right. Because I was, I was just thinking about obviously that I was going to ask you about the rehab work, and obviously because you mentioned that right at the start with the kites, so that you know yeah. it wasn't just you know about well, it clearly wasn't about making money. You you put an, talk about the conservation and the rehabilitation work that you achieved out in in Nepal then. Yeah, so the, I mean, as far as the sort of conservation, I never set out to be 
a conservationist and I probably wasn't much of a conservationist before you know I, I, probably only in terms of being a falconer and being aware of conservation issues but um I think when you're traveling and when you're away and you know you've got less things going on less pressures of your normal sort of day-to-day -day living and you can kind of get involved in different aspects of life and I and the conservation the vulture conservation issue was something that we was aware of we were aware of in the you know in 2001 and that and that just escalated very, very quickly. Um, the, my first um, kind of involvement in it, I suppose, was when Richard Cuthbert, do you know, know Richard Cuthbert, the RSPB? He used to work for the RSPB years ago. Hey, rings a bell, yeah. Yeah, so he was heading up the vulture conservation uh, work out in Nepal. This was back in 2003, I think. And um, uh, I had a guy working with me, James Irons. James Irons, do you know? He no, worked... I only know him from following you, I think, from your yeah, work. he's yeah. a good guy, and, and he works with me out in, in Nepal. He works now at Burren Bird of Prey Centre in Ireland. Um, so, and so Richard was coming out, and he was doing surveys and, and number counting and, um, you know, tra uh, satellite tagging. And so we sort of jumped on, on the back of that because he needed somebody local who had some connections and we wanted to contribute as, as much as we could. So we were helping Richard with satellite tagging and, um, and monitoring and stuff um, back in the early days. Yeah. Um, and then we kind of got involved with some of the feeding um, sites that he was working on. Uh, and we ended up taking over one of the feeding sites, the Gatchot feeding site, which is what we ended up becoming patrons of and um, providing the funds for that. So. Even in the early days, we were doing vulture conservation stuff. And, that, and so we wanted parahawking to be important for that. We, we needed to be, it, we wanted to use it as a platform really to raise awareness of vulture conservation because we didn't feel like the vulture conservation issue in Nepal was getting as much press attention as it deserved. Uh, yeah. But yet we were getting a lot of press just by me flying around the sky with, you know, with a bird. And, and yeah. it seemed a little bit unjust that I was getting all this press attention and yet, you know, this um, ecological sort of catastrophe was unfolding. So I wanted to sort of try and, you know, channel and focus some of the attention onto that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I, I followed you from, from the early days of that sort of thing. And I think you definitely did with, with as I say, National, National Geographic, the DVDs that you, you produced and so on. So, um, yeah, it's it's brilliant. I have got a question. Someone's asked it. Well, you'll know who this is. Who's asked the question? Jimmy Robinson. Um, are, <laughs> I, I've got a feeling this is a leading question, but I, it's quite simple. Are tandem flights stressful? <laughs> they are when I'm flying in. <laughs> well, I imagine you need, Jimmy's a tall <laughs> chap, so I imagine you need a big clip to jump on. <laughs> He's in front of you, so you can't see anything. You know, so you're just flying blind, really, just trying to. He know, yeah, because basically, when Jimmy went, Jimmy's brilliant. Jimmy, oh, he's brilliant. So when we when Jimmy came out, um, we would quite often, you know, take the downtimes when we didn't have bookings. Um, we would just go up for fun flights, yeah. and um, and quite often we would fly both birds together because it was exciting. And yeah. and if we're going to fly both birds together, we would take as many cameras as possible to try and get some publicity shots, you know, so, um, and also it was never, for, for some reason, every time I flew Jimmy, it wasn't the best flying conditions. Okay. So like, I'll be struggling to stay in the air 
juggling about five different cameras and flying with both birds. <laughs> I mean, it was just, just proper stressful. Oh, there we go. I knew, I knew there was more to it. It was too simple a question. I thought there's got to be some, there's got to be something. I'm sure he hated flying with me. I'm sure he was dreading the day when I'd be like, come on, Jimmy, come on, let's go and fly both birds. He'd be like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose, yeah, you've got, you've got to exercise the birds. It's a bit different than taking the Harris Hawk for a walk around the woods. So, yeah, exactly, jump, yeah. Jump, off a, jump off a cliff with a tandem. So, yeah, I think, well, I... Uh, people is there anywhere still because obviously you've left nepal now we'll, we'll we'll talk about that in a you can tell us a bit about that in a second if you want to um is there anywhere people can go is that that they can still read all about the early days and and follow back on the parahawking website what's the what's the situation there yeah there's a bit on the parahawking website about nepal i think i've um i've replaced a lot of the stuff because i was trying to promote yeah, yeah. Um, what we do in Spain. Um, they can. There's a DVD uh, that they can buy called Flight for Survival. Yeah. Um, that will probably give them the best uh, insight into you know what we did out there and what we were trying to achieve, at least with the projects and with vulture conservation. Um, yeah, it's it's difficult to tell the whole story because it was such a long, you know, period of time and so much happened over that over that time but the, the dvd flight for survival is probably the best thing that cool. we could, uh, and that's that's still available is it I'm, 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 yeah they'd have, have to get in touch with me i've got some flight line around somewhere oh good yeah, yeah. no that's good yeah, well yeah get, get get it out there tap yeah we'll uh get get them sold um yeah. absolutely cool okay so obviously you left nepal um and then you moved to spain well, there was a bit of an in-between, probably. You're, you're probably best explaining it as you want to than me, so go on, yeah. leave it to Paul. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a long story. Do you want the long version or the short version? Well, you can give us whichever, the abridged, you can give us the polite, non-sweary version, whichever you want. I'll give you the polite, non-sweary version. Um, yeah, if anyone wants to know the full sweary version, they might have to um, contact me separately. They can buy you a beer. You can buy me a beer, yeah. Um, no, it came to an end, you know. Um, it, it was always a controversial project. You know, anyone who's working with birds of prey, whether you're a falconer, whether you're a pest controller, whether you're working in a zoo environment or a bird of prey, so it, it's a controversial field. And there's going to be people that are for it, there's going to be people who are against it. And... Um, you know, we had our supporters, but we also had our enemies. Um, animal rights organisations were opposed to what we were doing. You know, so we there was always a little bit of a battle um, trying to justify what we were trying to do, how we were doing it, our methods, you know, trying to stay as um, ethical as, as possible, you know, without feeling like we were doing anything exploitative. Yeah. You know, I was very concerned that um, it was a, you know, it was a new concept for, the, for, for locals, you know, using birds, using animals in this way to try and promote and raise money for vulture conservation projects or any conservation projects for that matter. I, it was a new area, you know, yeah. so it, it was very, it was very difficult. And, um, and the more successful we got, the, the more problematic it became. And it just felt like it was all sort of coming to a bit of a head. And it did come to a head, you know, and, you know, we, we lost the battle, basically. 
Um, so we we decided that the best thing for us to do was to leave. But it did feel like it was sort of the right time anyway. And um, the kids' school had closed down a year before. So okay. you know, we were sort of homeschooling a little bit. And um, yeah, it just felt like, it, it, you know, because I mean, there was at one point I thought I was going to be in the pool forever. I thought that was, you know, this is where I want to be forever. And that started to change a little bit over um, towards the end. It's, I mean, you talk about the, it's interesting listening to you. you, you I, can, I can completely understand that you would have enemies in the sense because you always do, I suppose, when you're successful. And I, I, from, what, from an outsider looking in, it looked to me like Parahawking was nothing but successful in a positive way. And, and so I'm quite surprised in, a, in some ways, though, that you say that ethic, ethically, you know, questionable. Because for me, I don't, can you get any more natural than being able to fly with, do you know what I mean, fly with a bird? And, and of course, the birds are allowed to, you're, the vultures you're, you're flying are allowed to come and go in thermals and, you know, yeah, it, it, that, that, and you're flying in, again, I'm only talking from someone who's, who's looked at it on, online and, and seen videos. You're flying in some of the most incredible natural environments where the vultures are found naturally anyway. So yeah. I'm quite surprised you got, you, you, you get a lot of flack in some ways for that. Yeah, I, I think we, we got flack from a number of different angles. One of them is the, you know, um, the, ethics of keeping birds in captivity yeah, there's yeah. always going to be people that that, that oppose yeah. yeah and you know regardless of the fact that our birds and anyone who works with me jimmy or jimmy robinson will be able to attest to this and anyone else who works with me will um will, will say that our birds were flown as often as we could possibly fly them and when they did fly they were flying you know in the mountains in the, in the most natural environment possible for a half an hour an hour at a time sometimes more or less um but you know, but for the rest of the time, they're in their aviaries or they're sitting on their perches. And quite often, that's what you get judged for. Mm. You get judged for the fact that they're sitting there tethered or sitting in an aviary and not when they're flying. And obviously, you know, you, you can't convince everybody. Yeah, of course. We try and we you know we do try and we try as, as best we can to convince people that birds don't do that in the wild. And, and also, um, from a um just the concept of having a, a using a captive bird of prey um to raise money for conservation projects was a very new concept for nepalis because the way that charities work there is they get donated a lot of money and those that money get, it gets very well spent there are some amazing conservation projects in nepal but they don't raise money in the sense that you know yeah. charities raise money in the UK yeah, so yeah it was a bit of an alien concept and um and also we were using what what were now very critically endangered birds you know so that was very sensitive towards the end because it in the beginning obviously that wasn't an issue um but by the end suddenly you know Egyptian vultures the numbers were absolutely plummeting and we we were using critically endangered birds for essentially commercial purposes, you know. Yeah. So I, even I can I can justify it until I'm blue in the face, but I can also understand why it was becoming a bit of an issue. Yeah, I suppose in some ways as well. Though I I, I 
I look at it as it's it was a real feather in the I, I always saw it as a real feather in the cap for Nepal because it was I mean I, I people might think I exaggerate but I don't when you when I I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say you're the pioneer really behind flying with birds of prey and taking people up with birds of prey and for me I, I yeah I always saw that as a real a real coup really a real feather in the cap for whichever country you're based in doing it as because because you got so much coverage as well with it because it was such a out there thing you know with so you you're attracting bbc national geographic whoever so it yeah, but then there we go. We could talk, I could talk to you about it all, all night, but it just, yeah. yeah. It, so that's been and gone. So Nepal's been and gone. Um, so what was the, what was the, did you ever think, no, I, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bother with parahawking anymore. I'm, I'm going to go back to graphic designing and just living the good life. Or was it, no, come on, let's push on. Well, I, I never thought that, we, you know, when we decided that we were going to leave Nepal, um, I, you know what? I didn't have a moment to think what the alternatives would be. And I'll tell you why. And there's another fantastic story. And it's um, very similar to the to the meeting of Adam in the early days, you know, uh, the serendipity of that meeting and, and what it turned out to be. Yeah, uh, it happened again, you know, on the on the day that, we, that it all came crashing down in Nepal, we decided we were going to leave. We had some friends staying with us at, at Maya Devi, the place that we lived, and it was a little guest house. We had some friends staying out on holiday. And uh, I'd known them for a couple of years, and they run a paragliding school here in Spain. Okay. And a uh, lovely family, got two great kids, and we were sitting down having dinner. And um, and we were like, you know, what are we going to do now? You know, we're sitting there, Anita and I sitting there with our heads in our hands, you know, what are we going to do? And Rob, and Rob, in very typical, you know, Rob Mansley fashion, just went, come to Spain. You know, just like that. And I, again, I can remember that moment. He's like, come to Spain, you know. Um, I know a house across the field. And he's all very animated. You know, I know a house across the yeah, field. Yeah. And, um, and I'll phone the landlord, you know, and we can fly there. I'm sure you could do power over there. So literally within, within a day that we had a plan. We had a, you know, we, the door hadn't even closed before we were already walking through the other door. He'd phoned the landlord. The house was available. We just said, we're coming to Spain. That's it. So before the meal was over, we we already had a plan. <laughs> oh, brilliant! So yeah, you, you you literally didn't have any time to sit and think what if or no. what I should should do. Um, brilliant, good good stuff. So so that was how many years ago was that? When did you move to Spain again? Remind uh, me. So uh, three years ago. What people don't know is that we had already tried it in Spain or uh, nine years ago. We came to Spain as an experiment. Did, did you know that we'd, we'd been... Yeah, Harris Hawks ring a bell with this yeah, one. We had, yeah, two Harris Hawks, Heckle and Jekyll. And then we trained those two. And they were fantastic. There's some YouTube videos flying around of, of some of the flights with those two. Absolutely brilliant. But the recession was, you know, quite heavy at that stage. And we couldn't really afford to keep two projects running at the same time. So we had to just give it up. So it was... Coming to Spain was, and we always felt that we would be back here for some reason. We always felt that it was sort of an unfinished, unfinished business. Yeah. Um, so it just felt right to come back here, come back, yeah, at that time. So three years ago, three moved, years ago. To moved to Spain. Um, obviously no birds, because I know Kevin and Bob, unfortunately, had to uh, 
stay stay in Nepal. They became property of the government. Is that right? Yeah, it's a polite way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wasn't going to go into it in too much detail. That can be the that can be the uh, sweary version, I'm sure. So yeah, Kevin and Bob had to stay in staying and i and i didn't want to bring a tear to your eye either scott we've not had anyone cry on these yet and i don't want to start now but anyway I, I, i've shed i've shed many a tear over it um you know now i you know it's, it's a moment in time yeah. um it happened my only regret is that i wasn't able to do anything more for them i wasn't able to rescue them i yeah. wasn't able to let them go I don't know whether that would have been the best thing for them. You know, it was just so many things that I, I couldn't do. I tried for a long while. I did try. I had a lot of people who was willing to help me, but my hands were tied and there was nothing that I could do about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we, just to just to put people in the picture, because I've seen the pictures. It, it, what, it was, yeah, it wasn't the better. Well, it was it was awful conditions that they were they were moved to with the with the yeah the Nepalese government um, at that time. I think they are in better facilities now. I think oh, some good. people sent me. Um, you know, I've had some uh, news. You know, but they're in their aviaries. They're not going anywhere. They don't get flown. Obviously, they're, yeah. they're they're part of a little Pokhara Zoo project, which you know they've become an attraction. I would imagine. You know, um, uh, so yeah. that's where they are. I can't really comment too much they're, they're getting fed you know that's it yeah yeah so um okay jimmy's asked another question but i'll come on to it in a minute um because <laughs> i can feel this is gonna yeah I, yeah the, the, uh, we'll, we'll come to that in a second jimmy um so so spain obviously no birds so yeah. the master plan is to obviously you've tried harris hawks out there and by the sounds thing that worked quite well um but you go on talk us through what what was the plan yeah, the, in Spain? The, the plan was in an ideal world i would love to have got two egyptian vultures ideally the ones that you know i had before but to get two new ones that was the plan but they were like five thousand six thousand euros i don't even know what they are now i think they're out of reach of most people now and probably yeah. very almost impossible to get hold of um so they were like i just couldn't afford one let alone two and um it was a friend of mine um miguel uh who works at uh zoo marine in portugal oh santos santos is it yeah 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 yeah, I don't know. yeah yeah through social media yeah yeah that's it yeah yeah well i've met him once and um really nice guy and he and he contacted me he said why don't you consider getting some black vultures you know they're they're affordable you know i know a guy who breeds them so he, it was him that put black vultures onto me and I, so I ordered two uh, as soon as I could um, and then started building up the, the the project so I got two young black vultures I think uh, May uh, June May or June three years ago um, yeah. and then started training those Brilliant. so they're American black vultures aren't they the, 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 the smaller ones yeah. um, how did the training go? Because I'm sure there may be some people that will tune into this that, that want to know a bit about how, how you even begin to train a bird to fly to a, um, yeah, a, a, town, a, a paraglider, sorry. Yeah, so I, I mean, I read them from, I had them from when they were about three, four weeks old. So I mean, as you know, as a bird trainer, a lot of the, a lot of the training is done through the imprinting process anyway. Um, uh, I did have a, I just wanted to make sure because I was, I was very aware that I had one shot at this. Um, if I stuffed it up with these two birds, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to do it again. 
Um, it was too much of a big commitment to go through that pain uh, and do it again. So I knew that I had to get it right. So I, I, I went overboard in some of the training. Um, I had a, a fixed paraglider set up outside their aviary. Yeah. They could see <clears throat> 24-7. And I only ever fed them underneath that glider. So whenever they came out of the aviary, there was always food underneath the glider. So they immediately, so from the very, very early stages, they associated that glider with food. Yeah, and that's the hardest thing is to just to get them to um, associate the glider with reward. Um, and the rest really was just like training any other bird, you know, getting it to fly to you, building up its confidence, building up its fitness. Um, and then you just build up, you know, go through sort of stages, do a lot of the work yeah. on the ground, you know, lifting a glider up, running along with a glider, getting them to chase a glider. So, yeah, it, there's, there's a blog, actually. There's a series of four or five training blogs where i document the whole um... uh, drawing okay brilliant yeah. there we go so people can that's on that's on your website isn't it yeah so if they go on to the powerhawking website or the skywings falconry website is now there's a section under i think it's there's a link others or more more yeah. under, under more they'll find uh, some videos and stuff on there oh cool yeah yeah i, I i'm sure people will, people will, yeah there'll be lots of people tuning into this who, who are interested in that side of things so how's how's business then how's it going out there um obviously excusing the pandemic which is knackering everyone's <laughs> business up but, but but pre pre-pandemic how's how's the business well it was just it was just getting going you know it, it takes it took about a year to get the birds um up to the point where i was able to start taking people up on tandems you know prior to that it was friends anita a lot um and more friends and the occasional paid one um yeah. and you know the, but the birds weren't super real there's always times when you're chasing them around the mountain because they haven't landed with you or your but it was about a year into it where they were you know reliable enough to start taking paid customers and then you got to start building up the customer base again, you know, and I, I was under the illusion, stupidly under the illusion that I would leave Nepal and just suddenly take this very successful project that we were doing 500 flights a year. Yeah. By the end, we'd go, right, okay, we'll just lift that, we'll put that there and we'll just crack on with several hundred flights a year. But it wasn't the case, you know, by the time that we got everything going again, um, you're, you're, you're starting from scratch, you know, it's a completely brand new, project new birds new location new everything so it took a while to to get going build it up again yeah absolutely um oh so it's so it's it's yeah it's it's, it's getting this 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 was bad timing well it's been bad bad timing yeah, exactly. it is it is what it is um okay so we'll we'll go to so jimmy's got another question then i've got another question that's coming after that so uh, can you ask Scott to tell the story about his hike and fly up Fishtail Mountain? Ah, okay. Well, it wasn't quite Fishtail Mountain. That would be stretching it a little bit. <laughs> it was on the way. It was a place called Corchon, and it was quite. Uh, it was a, a, a. Is Jimmy asking this question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, um, so if people want to watch. That, that's on the DVD, Flight for Survival DVD. Okay. And that was part of that project. It was about trying to do something a little bit different, some, doing something that was spectacular, that was going to capture people's imagination and, um, uh, you know, just push the limit a little bit of what we'd done with the birds before. 
So it was a very high, I don't know how high the mountain is, I don't know, 4,000 metres, I think. High enough. High enough, yeah. Yeah, yeah, high enough. Some three, three, four thousand metres. I might be exaggerating. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, we had a team of people, porters carrying all the gear. I think we had a team of about 12 people. It was a two or three day trek. We couldn't do it all in one because of the birds, you know, so we were carrying the birds up on the fist the whole, t- the whole way. Yeah. Anita, Anita had just had her appendix out a couple of days before and insisted that she wanted to do the trip. Wow. So, um, yeah, highly irresponsible of me to let her to come because she was in agony the whole way, like just limping. Um, And so the plan was that we, we filmed the whole thing. We had two birds and we wanted to try and make it back to our base, um, which was quite a long, long flight. And the weather was terrible all the way up. It was raining. There was thick cloud. We got to the top. There was snow. We didn't think we were going to be able to fly. Yeah. And, um, uh, and then the following morning, it all opened up. There was no, there wasn't a cloud in the sky and, um, and we were able to fly. So we had two tandems, me flying Anita. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> a friend of mine flying his um, wife. Yeah. And then a camera chip filming the whole thing. So we had one crack at one crack at it, and we had to get both tandems off at the same time. There wasn't a breath of wind on the takeoff, so it was a bit of a sketchy takeoff. Yeah, proper run and hope, and um, and then the camera glider off at the same time as well, and all fly together and capture the whole thing. And if we stuff the launch or one of the launches up, that was going to be it. It was all going to be over. We've managed to get both tandems off at the same time, although one of them is proper sketchy and it's even yeah. on the DVD. And uh, and then uh, Martin, Martin Cray, do you know Martin Cray? I don't know, no. Sorry. Well, he's a, he's a good friend of mine. He's a paraglider and a good falconer. Okay, and he's yeah. probably one of the only other people who's trained birds to fly with him. Yeah. Um, so he was the camera guy on the other tandem. And, um, and yeah, so we, we filmed the whole thing. We didn't get back to where we wanted to get to. We had to land a little bit short, but we got down, both birds landed with us and uh, it, it, was a, it was a success. Oh, epic, good stuff. How long was the flight then? What, what is the average duration of a, of a tandem? I suppose, obviously weather dictating, but, but yeah. yeah. I mean, um, a, a commercial one, we wouldn't, we wouldn't fly for longer than about half an hour. Generally, that's the, the sort of optimum time for a passenger, really, because some passengers can get a little bit sick after that. Uh, and also, you know, the birds, you know, you're keeping them in the air for half an hour. You're feeding them the whole time. The more you're feeding them, yeah, they're yeah. losing their appetite. So at some point, you've got to get down. Uh, for this particular flight, I think we were in the air for about 45 minutes. Yeah. And Did it was you- just, a, there was no thermals. It was a very, very straight, very smooth glide all the way down to the landing. Brilliant. Well, so funnily enough, someone James James Knight, who I know works works with Birds of Prey, um, has asked, uh, "Did you ever have any instance with the birds not staying up in the air with you?" Um, I suppose that must have must have. Been yeah, good. in the early days. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely in the early days, and, and probably more so with the kites than anything. Uh, they were just a little bit more independent. You know, the main the main problem in the early days was them not following us all the way to the landing. Um, but the more you, it's all about repetition, you know, anyone who's yeah. trained birds, the more you do it, the better they get, you know, yeah. and it, it just becomes habitual. So, yeah, certainly in the early days, it wasn't perfect by any means. You know, what what people see on the videos and the little and the pictures, you know, that's the result of 
hours and hours and hours and hours of me, you know, traipsing up a hill with a glider, it going wrong, doing it again, you know, and getting it right. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was definitely uh, a lot of trials and tribulations. Yeah. Um, and then Taylor has wrote in, I can't pronounce her surname, Tavad, Tavid? Yeah, so she's put flying with Ed Edmund and Bulger. It was the coolest thing I've ever done and can't wait to go back. So there you go. You've got, a you've got someone coming back already when you're open. You should train Jax to fly with you so he can fly with me next time I'm there. There you go. Well, yeah, interestingly, Taylor, I did think about this the other day because I use him for the bird of prey experiences, and not the other day, before we got shut down. And I was still flying him. And I said to Anita, I said, you know what, I might get Jax to fly with paragliders. And she was like, oh, why do you want to go through all that again? You know, it's just <laughs> so stressful. Um, so I might do it. it. Who's Jax then? Come on. Jax, uh, uh, little Mal Harrison. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. Because, yeah. of course, yeah, I should, we should just mention that as well. So as well as doing your parahawking, um out in in spain now um and, and also we should mention what part of spain is it sorry just for people who might be interested whereabouts in spain are you yeah so we're, we're based in uh, algodonales which is uh which is a uh, a small village we're, we're just outside the village we're in the we're in the where they call the campo here which is a countryside um yeah. in andalusia so um we're an hour from seville an hour from marbella uh an hour and a half from malaga very nice excellent yeah. Um, excellent. So, yeah, it's, you don't just do the parahawking. You also offer, um, yeah, people can come and stay with you, can't they? And they can they can do a falconry course or, or learn learn about you know actually training and, and working with with birds of prey. And also, you do experiences, don't you? So on the ground. So for for anyone who's who's not not that keen on on leaving the leaving terra firma. Yeah. You, you offer stuff as well, don't you, where they don't have to? Yeah, parahawking, paraglide's not for everybody. Um, yeah. But, they, you know, there are a lot of people that want to have that, that intimate interaction with birds of prey. So, yeah, we do falconry courses. In fact, Taylor came on a, a falconry course. Um, oh. uh, bird of prey experiences and, and the power and a combination of, the, of you know, of the, the activities and also staying at the farmhouse as well. So they get yeah. to soak up a little bit of kind of Andalusian uh, life. And what about, so we, at the very start, something that I'm interested to know about, um, at the very start you mentioned about seeing people flying and, and you also, when you first go up with griffin, griffin vultures and, and the like, what, what, what's the sort of wildlife, bird of prey wise, where you are in, in, in Spain? What, what, what do you see? Well, I, I mean, we, we moved from one epic location in Nepal where it was just a mecca for birds of prey to another it's incredible the amount of birds of prey that are in our area I, I, I don't know did you see the little video I posted the other day of the vultures there was like over a hundred oh yes yeah there was like yes I did all circling yes if that was above the house yeah um griffin vultures every day every day uh, the occasional Egyptian vulture I've seen six Egyptian vultures, I think, since we've been here. They are around, but you don't see them as often. I saw a European black vulture a couple of months ago. That's the first oh, one I've seen. Wow. And I had a guy staying with me who took a photo, and you could see the band and the number on its leg. So um, after the lockdown, I'm going to follow that up and see um, and try and find out the history of that bird. 
Um, we see uh, booted eagles all of the time, Benelli's, you know, certain times of the year during migration. We've got European kestrels and common buzzards nesting on the farm. Um, peregrines up on the mountain. I've had some amazing flights with wild peregrines, as well as the uh, European black, uh, the the, uh, the Eurasian griffin vultures. Yeah. Um, Short-toed eagles, goshawks coming through the farm, spars. It's incredible. It's an, you know, I can sit there on a good day in the spring or the autumn and see about six or seven, eight different species of birds of prey. Wow, brilliant. You're making me jealous. I already get jealous anyway, because annoyingly, well, it, it's one of those things that I haven't done really. I've been to Philippines and Africa and Australia, various far, far away destinations, but I've actually done very little bird of prey stuff in mainland Europe. And yeah, I've got friends who who go there frequently to like Extremadura or Extremadura, how you pronounce it. Yeah. Um, you know, just to like you say for Egyptian vultures, see Egyptian vultures and so on. And it is, it's it's not that far away. So there you go. Maybe yeah. we should we should set up a, a birding tour. Then. Yeah, I mean, you can sit out on out on um, the bench where I've got the aviaries and just look back up at the house. You know, and if you sit there long enough, you'll see a booted eagle fly over. You know, or a short-toed eagle the other day was so I thought it was going to land on the house. And then, you know, in, this, in the autumn, there'll be Benelli's coming through. I saw yeah. two Benelli's catch a pigeon about 50 yards in front of me out in the field um, last year. I, I mean, it is incredible. If anyone wants to come out and see wild birds of prey in Europe, this is the place to see them. Brilliant. There you go. So there's another, there's another selling point. Yeah. Um, excellent. There's, right. And, well, this is actually a very good question. Jason Dowsett wants to know... <laughs> I mean, this is a wind-up, probably. No, it's not, actually. Well, it, you could, but I actually think it's a, a good question. You'll probably not. When is the book coming out? When's the book coming out? Oh, God, there's not going to be a book coming <laughs> out. He knows I'm about as illiterate as he is. <laughs> well, you, you could get people to write it for you. You can have it. But I, the thing is, we, I laugh about this because James Aldred, the, tree, the you know, wildlife cameraman that we had on before, friend of mine, the most unassuming person you'll ever meet. And he's just, he, he had his book come out, The Man Who Climbs Trees. And he said, I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd write a book, but he really enjoyed it. And yeah. it's a cracking book because he has done some crazy stuff. Um, and I'm sure yours will, yours will be exactly the same, Scott, with, with parahawking and the whole, yeah, the whole Nepal thing. And yeah. yeah. It, I mean, start. yeah, it has been, people have asked me because, Jason knows there's a lot more that happened in Nepal yeah. than, than just the stuff that I'm telling you. Um, it would make an interesting read. It definitely wouldn't all be about vultures and parahawking. There's some other stuff in there that would be very enlightening. Yeah. I don't think I'm, I, I mean, I can barely sit down and write an email, to be honest, Jimmy, let alone um, concentrate on a, on a book. Well, do, do, an, do an audio book then that's what editors and, and all them and, the, and then publishers they they deal with all, sorting out all that all that stuff but yeah, yeah. okay well, well, if, if there are anyone listening and they want to come and have a chat with me and take some notes i'm all for it there you go oh, there we go well i, I I'd, I'd buy a copy definitely um so one another thing i want to to um, find out about then is have you got obviously we talked about the conservation work that you got involved with um in nepal is is there any and I, I know we've discussed the odd thing you know between ourselves um have you are there any plans have you got any ideas that you'd like to get involved with any conservation projects you'd like to support now you know once you once obviously this pandemic's over and you can get back to it 
obviously yeah, been so, uh, yeah, getting yeah, the business up and up and running is more important the most important thing but yeah, yeah sure but yeah so this will give me an opportunity to sort of recap a little bit on the conservation work that we were that was important to me in Nepal um was the the, the feeding site the the gachok vulture feeding site which we ended up taking over the running and the funding from from the rspb yeah and um and that's probably out of all of the things that we achieved in Nepal, that's probably the, the thing that I'm probably the most proud of. Um, and that was the hardest thing to accept when we had to leave was that we were gonna, because we were donating about $5,000 a year um, that was contributing to the running of the site, mainly food for the cows, um, maintenance for the site, salaries for the, for the villagers that were, that were running it. Yeah. Um, if Jimmy's still listening, you know, I think Jimmy will, um, you know, it was one of his favourite places to go and hang out. It's a great story. I've got to tell you this story. There was a great story. G me, Jimmy, and another friend, Danny Biddis, took a ride out one day to the Vulture restaurant. We hired some dirt bikes. We had a day off and we went out to the Vulture restaurant. And um, uh, we went into the hide and we'd, we'd quite often go into the hide and have a little nap, yeah. you know, and just wait for there was hundreds of vultures up on the ridge and they weren't coming down to feed. So we'd have a little nap. And then just hang out in the hide and we, we ended up sort of waking up and then leaving and um and as we got our bike got on our bikes and rode up the hill we looked back and the farmer was 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 burning all of the grass all around on the hide and he wouldn't had we not left he wouldn't have known that we, we were in there <laughs> and um he could have if jimmy's still listening he'll remember that time when we nearly got burnt alive in the hide yeah, so the vultures could have had barbecue, barbecue yeah. bricks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, that, so yeah, that was, uh, you know, we were running that and we were funding that up until the point that we left. And my intention was that when we, when we came here, we were going to try and continue to raise money for that project. We haven't been able to do that from our side because, you know, we needed to get the business up and running first. But there has been some help from um, the American Eagle Foundation in the States. Um, Connor and Kayla, I don't know whether Kayla's listening, but she has really helped and they raised a lot of money this year. I think they've donated a few thousand dollars to keep that Brilliant. up and running. It's been taken over by Prem, uh, a friend of mine in Nepal, and he is doing some regular visits. So, um, yeah, we, we, you know, if anyone wants to get involved in that and, and I'll be speaking to you about that mm -hmm. in a separate um, conversation about how we can continue to raise money for that. That's definitely something that we want to continue to do. And um, without the funds, it's going to be very difficult for it to, to continue. continue. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, brilliant. Um, well, is that, I mean, is there any, I, I don't know, actually, I've not looked at any vulture feeding restaurants around you in, in Spain. Is there, or in, I say Spain like it's a small, it's a country. But in your area, is there anything going on? conservation-wise? Well, it, yeah, I mean, I've been looking for three years to find something that's organised. There's nothing really organised. There are um, feeding areas where farmers are allowed to put food out. It's yeah. all very um, heavily controlled. You have to get permits to put carcasses out. Um, so there are places that do it, but you don't know when they're going to get a carcass. You don't, you don't know when they're going to put food out. It's not publicised. It's not, it's not done for commercial purposes or to raise money for charity or anything. We have um, uh, recently, just before the lockdown, I, I made contact with, um, I think she's a Dutch lady and she owns a big estate not far from here. 
and she has permission to put carcasses out. Okay. Um, so, and we were just about to hook up when all of this happened. So, um, so when this is over, then I'm going to go and see her and see if we can come to some agreement. Good. So work, work in progress. Yeah. Oh, well, well uh, excellent, exciting. Right. We've hit. We're pretty much on an hour, Scott. So I'm, I'm, I'm conscious. You know, it's eight o'clock over there with you. It's seven o'clock here. So I don't want to. I don't want to keep you for much, much longer. But uh, yeah, thank you very much for, for yeah, shoot, for taking the time out to talk about pirate. I find it fascinating. I think it's brilliant. I might. I think I, I've said this to you a couple of times. I think I need to lose a bit of timber before I can come on a tandem again. I think I put a bit of weight on since the last time I did it. So I'll. Uh, no, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You're not. You're not 100 kilos, are you? I do, oh, I don't know. I, I better check that. I don't know. I'm a big lad. No, you'll be fine. Um, yeah, but well, <laughs> yeah, but thank you, thank you very much for taking the time. All the best in Spain. Um, I'll stick up in the comments, people. I'll put um, a yeah, I'll put a link up to your website, Scott. And then if anyone wants the DVD, they can yeah, they can they can get in touch with you, can't they? And and yeah, if anyone wants to go and fly the bird, fly with the birds, or, or fly the birds if you want to stay on the ground, yeah. you can go and stay in the farmhouse with Scott and the family. Um, yeah. Come cool. right, everyone. Thank you very much. Um, hope you enjoyed that. Right, I will end this now, Scott, and then we're done. Thank you very much, Scott. Cheers, man. Brilliant, Jimmy. Nice to speak to you.